0: So, at the beginning of a new year, as I say, it, it seems appropriate to start a new series. And I, I want to start by asking the question, what does it mean to be spiritually healthy? Or, to put it slightly differently, maybe a bit more bluntly, what does it look like to be grown up as a Christian? Well, to be perfectly spiritually healthy, in the very simplest terms, is to be like Jesus. Therefore, we want to grow If we want to grow more spiritually healthy, we need to grow more like Jesus. Kind, compassionate, courageous, brave, loyal, wise. Unfortunately, none of us are completely Christ-like. And we struggle with sin sickness. We, We continue to battle against temptation. And in a sense, this is the battle each one of us have. In fact, we will struggle with these things until Jesus, the day that Jesus Christ comes back and returns. But we can be assured that God is working for your good. You can know that God is working for your Christ-likeness. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1-3 to three says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what you are. And the reason this world does not know us is because they do not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what you will be has not yet been made fully known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves. Just As He is pure. And in 2017, as we sort of just getting into it, this should be our hope. This should be our goal, to be more and more like Christ. And listen, God is working for this. In fact, God is working all things for your good. He's working it all so that you can become more and more like him through the ups and downs, the trials, the thrills, the spills, the mundane and the routine things of life. It's all there to bring and to shape you into that person that God ultimately wants us to be. And this should be the normal experience of what it is to be a Christian, both today, but also back in the mid-40s AD, when James wrote this book that we're going to be looking at over the next two or three months. And this letter is written to people who were struggling under the pressures of living in a sinful world. And the answer is still the same today as it was back then to humbly accept God's wisdom that we find in God's word. It is to become more and more like Jesus. And through this book, James reinforces the message with these practical examples, which will at times feel a little bit hard-hitting. They will also be there to challenge us, to encourage us to live by the divinely implanted word and spirit as we face the pressures and the difficulties of this world with all of this godless values that can so easily just overpower us. See, God is not content to simply see you saved through Christ. He has decided to make you more like Christ, to be mature to be healthy in your faith. And this requires both growth and grace. It requires work, and it requires hope. So we get into this book, the obvious question to begin with is, who wrote it? Well, there are probably um, at least five different candidates, five Jameses in the New Testament. So three of them are apostles, the son of Zebedee, the son of Alphaeus, and the brother of Jesus. The fourth one is the brother of Jude, and then the father of the apostle Judas, not the one who betrayed Jesus, the other one, the one that nobody ever talks about. Um, and uh, so these are five possibilities. Now, it's worth saying that we cannot be absolutely sure which one of these Jameses actually wrote the book of James, but most theologians, theologians agree that it was the biological brother of Jesus himself. Now, It's worth noting as you read James chapter 1, have a little look, James chapter 1 and verse 1, James doesn't describe himself as the brother of Jesus. Instead, he humbly describes himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now given that James is actually the Lord Jesus' brother, this may feel a little bit strange. There's certainly no name dropping going on here. He's not sort of saying, hey, look at me, I am the brother of Jesus, so you better listen to my words. Nothing of that is going on, not even for a moment. James thinks it's better to be the faithful servant of Jesus than to be the biological brother of him. His identity is first and foremost in Christ. And he emphasizes the importance and the privilege of being a servant of Christ, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, as we've we heard already, it fits in perfectly with what we've been already sharing this morning, but is that your heart? Is that the desire of your heart, that beyond anything else, I want to be more like Jesus? Is that your desire? Of course, Jesus is not technically the... Jesus... Um, was technically only the half-brother. Joseph was James's father, not Jesus' father. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and by God. It's worth noting as well that James and, in fact, the other brothers didn't actually believe in Jesus during his his earthly ministry. However, after Jesus' death and resurrection, the brothers are mentioned among the disciples, recorded in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, as they prayed together in the upper room. So something had changed. What had changed in that space of time? Well, you see, Jesus had appeared to James after the resurrection, and he now believed that Jesus truly was the Saviour. But perhaps more importantly, he truly believed that Jesus was his saviour. In fact, James very quickly becomes a leader within the church in Jerusalem, and he's even called a pillar of the church in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 9. James was a man who was greatly respected. He's a man of integrity, a man who was married. His status is seen very clearly in Acts chapter 15 where he mediates over a major division within the early church. He, was, he had the ability to bring people together in peace based on the Word of God. He was also a man of prayer, who would, explain the em- and, and would probably would explain the emphasis of prayer that we will see throughout this letter. Tradition says, actually, that James was such a man of prayer that he, would, he spent so much time on his knees that his knees were as hard as that of a camel's knee again not recorded in scripture either or the writing or, or writings but around that time tell us again how james died james was martyred for his faith in ad 62 the story is that the pharisees in jerusalem hated um, james's testimony about jesus christ so they threw him down from the temple and they beat him to death with clubs It said as well that James, as he died, he prayed for his murderers, just as his Saviour had done. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This letter is interesting, but also actually quite controversial in places, and we will see that as we go through it. It's often been described and having a very Jewish flavor to it, perhaps not surprisingly. After all, James was a Jew and would have been brought up under the traditions of of, of Moses' law. He only quotes, however, the the Old Testament five times throughout this letter, but there are many other allusions to the Old Testament passages within within the book. There are also many allusions to the teachings of Jesus as well, particularly the Sermon on the Mount. But you will also notice as we go through it that there's not much mention of Jesus or the gospel or the cross. However, the distinctive Christian theologies of Jesus, the gospel and the cross are definitely in there. And this letter concentrates really much more practically on the outworking of our theology. And listen, it is really important that our theology is real. If it is real, it should be lived out in a very practical way. But not everybody actually likes the book of James. In fact, Luther is very famously known for describing James as an as as an epistle of straw. And actually wondered if it even should have been included within the canon of Scripture at all. And the reason why Luther and others have difficulty with the book of James is that there seems to be no obvious structure or no common thread that's running or holding the ideas of James together. Also, what James says about faith and works, at least at first glance, seem to be very different to what Paul says in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. And as as we read through this book, you will also notice that James does not make suggestions. He commands... He is dogmatic and he is straight to the point. He's almost legalistic in his approach. So as we go through this book, we must never lose sight of the grace of God and the unmerited favor and love of Jesus towards us. But as we work through this letter, we will tackle some of these problems and and questions and challenges, but also we will discover, I think, that James is just as passionate about the grace of God as Paul was. But perhaps we can best sum up this book of James with this one command found in chapter 1, verses 21 to 22. Humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word, and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. So, who was James writing to? Who was he talking to? Well, again, we look at verse 1. We read, To the twelve tribes scattered across the nations. Greetings. Now, it's so important that we understand the background that, that any letter written to, but also to understand the background and culture that James is writing into here. See, James led the church in Jerusalem at a very difficult time. It's a time of transition. There are many Christian Jews in Jerusalem who still held onto the Old Testament law. The temple was still in operation and the full light of the gospel of God's grace had not really been fully understood. Listen, we have the privilege of having read Romans and Galatians and Hebrews. These early believers hadn't. They had received Jesus, they were filled with the Holy Spirit, but they were still living under the shadow of the law and were moving into the bright light of God's grace and something of this is reflected in in, in a sense in the way in which James writes this letter James was writing to Jews also living outside of Palestine and James describes the people of God as the 12 tribes now this can only mean the people of Israel the the, the Jewish nation 19 times he calls them brothers But they're not only just his Jewish brothers, they are also his brothers in the Lord. And the fact that there were so many Jews living outside of the Promised Land would suggest a level of spiritual decline within this nation. God had scattered his people. As we have seen repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, how God sometimes scatters his people in order to discipline them. In Lamentations chapter 4, verses 11 to 16, it just gives us something of an indication of how these people probably were feeling. Verse 11 it says, The Lord has given full vent to his wrath. He has poured out his face anger. He kindled a fire in Zion that consumes her foundations. And then a little bit, a little bit later on in verse 16, sums up the judgment. The Lord himself has scattered them. He is no longer watching over them. The priests are shown no honour, the elders no favour. And this section of Jeremiah's lamentation over the destruction of Jerusalem by the army of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon describes just the heartbreaking awfulness of the Lord's judgement on his people. They have been exiled from his land so that they would understand just the seriousness of their sin. Most of you will never experience what it feels like to be scattered in that particular way. But many of you, in fact if not all of us, will have at times known what it feels like to be far away from God or even far away from our fellow believers. In those times, it's just worth stopping and taking a moment. Asking the question of ourselves, is the Lord disciplining me? Does he want just to get my attention? Is he, is he trying to bring me back into sort of humble obedience towards him? See, we often blame God when he seems far from us. We forget to ask the important question, is it actually me who has wandered away from my daily walk with him? Listen, at the beginning of a new year, it's a good time just to take a moment just to stop just to examine our hearts in the light of God's word, allow the Holy Spirit just to reveal truth into our hearts. But actually, scattering isn't always because of discipline. Scattering can be for blessing. So we read in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. In Acts chapter 11, verse 19, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, travelled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus and Antioch, spreading the word, spreading the word among the Jews. In the early church, the Jewish believers were scattered like seed because of persecution. But the result of that sowing of that seed was into new places, into new territories, into even new nations, and that was producing much fruit. And these. Christian Jews that were scattered throughout the Roman Empire were, were actually were doing it actually at a great cost to themselves. Being Jews they were rejected by the Gentiles. Being Christians they were also rejected by their own people. It meant that these believers were very poor they were oppressed, they were suffering greatly. But this is how God had also chosen to reach the lost. And there's a sense in which Christians then and now are living as a scattered people and live scattered lives among the nations of this world, showing and speaking how wonderful it is to be a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. James chapter 1 verse 1. Now every New Testament letter has got a special theme and a purpose in writing it. So Paul wrote the book of Romans to prepare the Roman Christians for his visit. In 1 Corinthians, it written to the church in Corinth to help them to correct certain problems within the church. Galatians, it was written to a group of churches to warn them against legalism and against false teaching. James's letter was written to people just like you. To show you what solid, real, joyful, practical faith looks like for a scattered and for a suffering people. But as we get further into the book of James, you will discover that these Jewish Christians were also having some problems both in their personal lives but also in their church fellowship. They were going through difficult testing. They were facing temptations to sin. Some of the believers were making themselves rich while others were actually being robbed by the rich Church members were competing for position within the church, particularly wanting a teaching ministry. But perhaps the greatest problem in this church was a, f- was a failure to live a life that matched what they said they believed. This was such a serious problem that was causing wars and causing divisions within the church. And Christians were disobeying God's word and actually were physically sick because of it. And some of them were even straying away from the Lord Jesus and from the church. And of course, this list of of problems is not that different from the problems that trouble the average local church today. After all, do we not have people in our church who are suffering for one reason or the other? Are there not people who talk one thing and do something completely different? Worldliness is still a serious problem, and there are still Christians who cannot control their tongue. And this issue that James is dealing with are actually just as applicable today as they were back then. See, James is not discussing just random, miscellaneous problems, but rather all of these problems have a common cause, spiritual immaturity. These Christians simply have not grown up. And that's the basic theme of this letter, and that is that we should grow in maturity in the Christian life. So we read in James chapter 3 and verse 2, where he talks about the perfect man. However, he doesn't really mean the sinless man, but rather the one who is mature, who is balanced, and who is grown up. John Wesley describes the Christian perfection very well. He says in his words, In one view, it is the purity of intention, dedicating all of the life to God. It is the giving God all our heart. It is one designer and design, ruling all of our tempers. It is that of devoting, not in part, but all our soul, body and substance to God. Spiritual maturity is the greatest need in the churches in our churches today. Warren Wheelsby writes, Too many churches are becoming play pens for babies instead of workshops for adults. And just like in Hebrews chapter five, we're living off milk. We're not mature enough to eat the solid spiritual food that is needed that we end up just seeing the characteristics of little children being displayed within church. So in chapter 1, impatience and stroppiness when difficulties come. Chapter 2, talking but not living the truth. Chapter 3, no control of the tongue. Chapter 4, fighting and jealousy. Chapter 5, collecting material toys. And God is looking for for mature men and women to carry out his work, and sometimes all that he finds are little children who cannot seem to get along with one another. This letter suggests markers of what it is to be mature Christians. If you like, a checklist for our faith. But here again, I need to add just a little bit of caution in case that we turn faith into some sort of list of rules and regulations and legalism. You see, perfect salvation is only found in Christ. It comes through grace. It's a gift from God. It is not how, it's it's, it's nothing that we can ever achieve in ourselves, not even for a moment. So please understand, James is exhorting his readers to build on the perfect salvation, and to grow into maturity that is found only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, through repentance of sin, through hope in Christ. But without the perfect work of Christ, there is no maturing of the believer, because without Christ, none of us could possibly stand. But grace must never be an excuse for us not to examine our hearts and to honestly look where we are in the Christian life. So first of all, it is essential that we accept Jesus as Lord of our life. You must be born again. Without the spiritual birth, there is no spiritual maturity. So in 1 Peter 1, verse 23, it says, For you have been, you have been born again, not of the perishable seed, but of the imperishable, through the living and through the enduring word of God. The spiritual parents of a new spiritual baby are the Word of God and the Spirit of God. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, he told him that he needed to be born both of water and of the Spirit. And it's the Spirit of God that takes the Word of God and just generates new life in the heart of the sinner who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's both a mystery, but also it's a miracle. We are saved by faith and faith comes from the Word of God, but it's the Spirit of God that brings life to our souls. Secondly, we must honestly examine our lives in the light of God's Word and allow the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts. At the end of chapter one, James uses the illustration of the mirror. It is only when you look into the mirror of God's Word that you see yourselves as you really are. The story is told about a tribesman who saw a mirror for the very, very first time and as he, he looked into it he found it so strange, in fact so scary, so shocking that he ended up just smashing it on the floor. And many Christians do exactly the same thing. They don't like what they read in the Bible. They, they don't even like what they hear preached perhaps from the, the church. So they criticize or they they, they try and and, and just run away rather than looking at themselves. Third thing, we must obey what God teaches us no matter what the cost. You know, it's very easy to attend Bible studies. It's easy to um, listen to sermons preached. In fact, it's very easy, easy even to preach sermons and even to discuss them. But it's much more difficult to put into practice what we've learned to live it out in the workplace, in schools, in universities, within our homes. You see, the blessing does not come in the study of the Word of God, important as that is, but it comes in the doing of the Word of God. God is looking for obedience. He's looking for hearts that are given completely over to Him. The fourth thing, be prepared for extra trials and testings. Whenever you get serious about spiritual growth, the enemy is going to get serious about opposing you. So let's give a little example to find. If we, if we find you want to grow or you, or, or, or you need to grow in patience, well, you need to be prepared to know that God will put you in places that require patience. There's a joke in our family that you never want to go, go traveling with Keith because I have spent more times hanging around airports with delayed flights often even cancel flights. Maybe God's telling me something, quite possibly. But actually, how do you react when the plane is delayed, when, when you get that flat tire, when you're late for that meeting, or even miss that meeting? Do you see it as a God-given opportunity for you to spend a few hours to grow in patience, or do you use that time to practice your impatience? If you take this seriously, if you apply God's Word to spiritual growth, Satan will turn up the heat. So be prepared. Be ready as we get into some of the details in this passage. will be challenging things that will be said as we, 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 we grapple with God's word. But be prepared as you begin to deal with some things. Satan will not want it to happen within your life. He wants you, in fact, to, to think it's easier just to walk away. It's easier to give up. But as the pressure builds, you can be sure that you are on the verge of a breakthrough, of a wonderful blessing, an exciting new step of maturity within your life. The fifth and the last thing is this. we must measure. You must measure your spiritual growth by the Word of God, not against other Christians. Listen, Jesus is our example, nobody else. So allow the Word of God to shape you and to change you. Give permission to the Holy Spirit to challenge you and to reveal the true nature of your heart even when it's painful at times. And at times, it will be painful. But age and maturity are not necessarily the same thing. Just because someone's been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years or even longer does not guarantee that they are mature in the Lord. Not everybody who grows old grows up. The message of the book of James is simple. It's time to grow up. Let's just pray. Father, we, we just want to start at the beginning of this new series. Lord, as we've just thrown everything in there or up in the air for now. Father, we pray, Lord, what is needed this morning to settle in our hearts by your Spirit would settle. Father, just begin to speak and to to soften my heart, soften our hearts. Lord, we would deal with the issues in our life, but we would deal, Lord, with them by coming to you. So, Lord, we want to give permission, Lord, just at the outset of this new year, Lord, as we begin this new study, Lord God, that you would, by your Spirit, just come and just move mightily in our hearts, Lord Jesus. Bring change, bring, bring transformation, Lord God. Make us soft, make us malleable, Lord. Make us usable to you, Lord. We do, Lord. I, Lord, my prayer, I know m- most of our prayers here, Lord, is we want to become more like you. Lord, that's our heart. Lord, often we struggle to know how. And Lord, I pray, Father, that through your word, Lord, you would teach us. Help us to listen, Lord. Help us to understand. Lord, be gracious with us at times, as you always are. But Lord, also just challenge us too, Lord. And Lord, I just pray, Holy Spirit, Lord, I give you permission to challenge my heart. Lord, I pray for my friends here. That they would be able to just open up to you, Lord, at this time. To know you speaking, to hear from you. Lord, that we may grow in you. So I pray, Lord, just for a season of maturity over this church. Lord, for a growing up as we step up. Lord, there'll be a growing up in you. and Lord, we, we just... Admit we need you in this. Lord, we pray, Lord, for your grace in this. We pray, Lord, God, for your, your help in this. Lord, we pray, Lord, just for your love in us, for you and for one another in this. So Lord, be with us. We ask that in your precious name. Amen. Amen.